Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I also think that where juries really compensate you is for the loss of the good things. You know, it's not the bad stuff. You don't pay for pain and suffering, you pay to get rid of it. Sometimes I've even just said to the jury, take it, take all that pain and suffering, give it to them. But you have to compensate them for the good stuff that was taken. And then I go through all the good stuff that was taken. And I usually get, that's when I got the $370 million. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am Steve Lowry here with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Uh, I am good. I'm good. Um, You know, right in the middle of trial prep. So you know how there's like a million things going on at one time. Yeah. How many weeks out are you from when it starts? We are exactly two weeks out and there's been, uh, uh, I don't know how many motions filed, but we're going to argue a bunch of them on Friday. That's so two weeks is like, that's my panic time. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, I mean, if, if I could just focus on, you know, working on witnesses and stuff like that, it would be no problem. But when you've got, you know, 35 motions to respond to and, right. uh, you know, and then go argue all those when, you know, I mean, we, we all know what the case is about. We just need to get in the courtroom and try it. But, yeah. uh, but, but defendants never work that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, um, well, Yvonne, let me read something to you and then I'm going to introduce our, uh, our guest today. But, uh, but tell me what you think of this. Uh, it's a Saturday just before 5 p.m. We're in the Antelope Valley. It's a cloudy, cold day in the high desert and it's just starting to rain. And the defendant, Miss Schilling, she leaves the Antelope Valley Mall. What do you think about that? Uh, I, I, it sounds familiar. <laughs> I, I, I think it's such a great way to start an opening statement because it really sets the scene. Uh, it almost sounds like uh, that we're about to walk into a gunfight or something. I mean, it just start, it sort of builds that tension. And this is the very first paragraph of the opening statement that our uh, guest Rex Paris gave in the case that we're about to talk about. And so I wanted to go ahead and introduce Rex from Lancaster, California. Rex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and we are so glad to have you on. But I, I, when I read that first, uh, that first paragraph, I was like, man, that just really sets, it just builds the tension right there. And you just want to know what happens next. And, uh, well, and I just love the way I, I have to correct something first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't me. That was Alex Wheeler, my partner. He did the opening. Oh, man. Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> sorry I, about I, did, that. I did the closing. <laughs> well, well, I'm sorry. I mean, it, is, it takes a team, right, to win, to win a big case like this. Yeah, um, there was five lawyers on it, so. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, I, uh, and we, we're definitely going to get into talking about it a, a lot more, obviously, since it's the Great Trials podcast. Um, but, uh, but Rex, let me talk a little bit about you and, uh, and, and introduce you. So uh, our guest, again, as I said, is Rex Paris of the Paris Law Firm in Lancaster, California. You can look up Rex at parislawyers.com, and that's Paris with two R's, so it's P-A-R-R-I-S, lawyers.com. And Rex, you have gotten some, uh, not only really just great honors. First of all, I should say that your firm has been, has successfully uh, gotten through either verdicts or settlements over $1.4 billion, uh, including the largest uh, verdict in 2009 in the U.S., which from what I saw was a $370 million 
defamation verdict, which uh, that sounds like it would be a great story as well for the show on a, on a, on another show. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, a defamation case, you know, just to, I mean, I know those can be highly charged cases, and we've actually had a defamation case on the show before. Uh, with Johnny Parker and Ronnie Crosby, and and that was a fascinating case. But I mean, that you know, three hundred seventy million dollars for defamation has got to be. Uh, uh, I mean, the the facts have to be just. Uh, I would imagine over the top. It was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Rex, uh, and, so and let me under, understand. It was also the the intentional infliction of emotional. Right. That right. Exactly. Verdict. So Rex, you, you have been, uh, um, okay. Last year in 2018, you were named lawyer of the year by best lawyers, uh, by us news and world report. You have been, I, I, you have a number of awards, but I, I picked out some of the ones that I thought were the coolest. I mean, not only are you, were you named a top, top attorneys by Southern, Cal, uh, Southern California trial lawyers, but, uh, you were named citizen of the year by the California highway patrol, uh, which is pretty cool. And then, um, not only that, but you were the mayor of Lancaster, California. Are you, you're not still the mayor, are you? No, I'm still the mayor. You're still the mayor. So we got to call you Mr. Mayor, right? Yeah, anything you want. Is fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you, uh, Rex has been, Mr. Mayor, I should say, has been an uh, adjunct professor at Pepperdine University. Uh, and and uh, Rex has a high school named after him, R. Rex Paris High School uh, in the Antelope Valley, I believe. and. Um, and uh, um, it just a uh, fantastic career. And, and you know, I, I did some of the reading on you, Rex. You, you're sort of at the forefront of, of uh, sustainable energy, green energy, and just some great uh, causes and doing a lot of really cool stuff with your uh, city of Lancaster, California. Yeah, you know, uh, last week, the city was named the city of the year by the FDA uh, for green power. And I was named the leader of the year. Uh, oh, for green power and I, i'm actually really proud of those yeah, of course what did you get you know they're yeah well all right uh, right <laughs> time right place you know but that, those those two awards i'm actually very proud of no that i is, mean it, it, that's really fantastic i'm curious how do you f i can't find time to be a lawyer and cook dinner so i'm wondering <laughs> to be a lawyer and also be the mayor <laughs> Well, you know, I, I have great people, you know, I've got a, I've got a firm with, I think, 20 some lawyers and 80 support staff, uh, the city staff, I got a great city staff, you know, basically, uh, I'm able to really focus on whatever I'm doing at the moment, because I got somebody else doing everything else. And, you know, my wife, my wife and I started this firm, and she's not a lawyer, but she's always run the firm. You know, she does all the money. They don't let me near a checkbook. You know? <laughs> right. And, and so look at how that frees you up. You know, I, I yeah. don't I don't deal with the business at all. And, you know, I, I my brother, uh, Rob, uh, he's a lawyer and he was doing the. Here my, my, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, that's that's the green energy. Whatever nobody can see is the lights went off on Rex while he was talking to us. <laughs> And he did all the mediations. I don't. I don't do well in mediation. And uh, the uh, so you know there was a division of responsibilities that have just made it very uh, conducive to to success. The only That's way fantastic. 
Yeah, well, that, that is fantastic. And not only have you had uh, great success as a lawyer with your law firm, but just outside of the law firm and really uh, accomplishing some great things uh, for not only your city, but, uh, but you know, for the nation and the world. I mean, it's, uh, it's really great. You know, I, I gave a speech last week and it's sort of, you know, we're, we're facing climate extinction, not climate change, you know, not global warming. We're facing extinction. So yeah. there really isn't any option here. You know, we, we really have to put all of our efforts into it. Uh, and especially if you're the mayor of a city. And so we set out to create a city that would create a template that once people started waking up to the dire uh, condition we're in, that it, they could get to net zero quickly if they just followed the template. And that's what we did. And so far it's worked out pretty well. And we, and we developed some new technologies along the way that uh, I think are going to have great ramifications. Um, well, again, that's just truly great work. Um, well, let's talk about our, our, the case that you tried last year in 2018. Um, so the name of the case was Anthony Taylor versus Samantha Schilling. It was tried in Los Angeles County. And uh, your client, Anthony Taylor, was the backseat passenger in a 2001 Lincoln LS. Uh, the defendant, Samantha Schilling, was in a 2010 Honda Civic. As I read in the beginning of the opening statement, um, she was uh, in the uh, Antelope Valley, uh, which is uh, it, uh, it, part of the Mojave Desert, uh, as I understand it. Uh, and um, she was leaving the mall, and essentially um, she... Um, there was a, she had a stop sign, your clients who, uh, I think it was his girlfriend's mother was driving the vehicle. Um, yeah. and he was with his girlfriend. Um, they had the right of way and essentially the, um, defendant, uh, just pulled out in front of them and caused a T-bone, uh, collision that resulted in, um, your client, Anthony, uh, sustaining a C5, C6, uh, um, spinal cord injury and becoming a quadriplegic um, and um, you know just uh, terrible um, you know damages for him uh, and the uh, go through the total verdict uh, which included only compensatories um, was a total of forty one million six hundred and thirty four thousand one hundred and seventy dollars and I saw on your website it looks like that that entire verdict got paid is that right yeah, it was it was paid within. Uh, well, you know, it took a while to work the paperwork, but they agreed to pay it with, within twenty four hours. Oh wow, that's uh, that that is uh, great work for your client. And um, I thought it was forty six million though. Well, I could have done math wrong. Now, that wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Let me see here. <laughs> he is in trial mode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if it was $46 million, then I, then I uh, sincerely apologize. I thought I had added it up to $41 million, but, uh, but we yeah, will correct that on the website. <laughs> um, and what, and, what was really interesting, it was a uh, $25,000 policy. Yeah, so I, that was going to be one of my first questions is, um, was there, a, was this a bad faith situation or they just missed a, a chance to resolve it? Well, what, what occurred was I, we, we had initially come into the case and we sent them a demand letter and every indication was they were going to pay it. But then the, the mother of the, of Anthony's mother 
uh, decided she wanted to do it herself. Uh, and because one of the things we do is if they pay the policy, we don't take a fee. And right. you know, like they were going to pay the policy. And so uh, she sent him a letter saying that, that she was in it and could they send her the money. And instead, they all of a sudden decided not to pay. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was pretty horrendous, actually. So six months later, we came back into the case and filed it and went forward. Uh, and uh, they, they knew they really didn't have any defense to that part of it. Right. So and the defendant was such a nice lady, too. I mean, it, it, uh, a jury would not have taken kindly to that. Right. So, and in the, is the way that it got paid so quickly, was it because uh, there was a punitive damages portion that was going to be starting or was there more to come? Is that what no, happened? No, it was, she, uh, she had a security clearance and, you know, I pointed out to them that a judgment could affect that, you know, right. And it would behoove them to avoid the judgment. And right. So they did. Right. I mean, they did the right thing. Yeah, well, that that is fantastic work. Um, well, um, so I, I should talk a little bit about the case. So this was, you know, and we've had these on here before. This was an admitted liability case. So the defendant was not claiming that they didn't cause the accident. Uh, but then as far as what the damages were and what the value of the case was, uh, there was quite a bit of, uh, of defense on that uh, aspect of it. And, um, and it's as we've said before that, you know, when, when defendants admit liability, uh, you know, it's a tactical move because uh, from their standpoint, they think that, you know, by coming in there admitting liability, they can keep the damages down, keep them to a lower amount. And, um, uh, you know, and thankfully, in this case, you were able to keep them from doing that. Well, I thought they should have given us more. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and we'll talk about, I mean, it's a really, it's a really tragic I mean, heartbreaking case, really horrible injuries, and really, really uh, what sounds like an absolutely horribly painful road um, that your client had to had to travel after this accident. Yeah, and that, that was the reason why they gave $15 million for past non-economics and $15 million for future. You know, the, the future was going to be much better than the last three years have been. Uh, because, you know, they, they, he ends up in a nursing facility and ends up with, uh, and he had a, you know, those full body, uh, braces, you know, right. And they didn't take care of him and he ended up with, uh, with bed sores and that went all the way to his spine. Everybody thought he was going to die when transferred him to an acute care facility. Uh, and you know, he was tortured, really. But, but you know, he, he didn't have any feelings, so he couldn't tell anybody. Uh, but he was he was left to rot, quite literally. You know? Right, right. So it it uh, it was horrendous. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. 
Yes, and LTS Legal Technology Services are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. One of the things that I was at least noticing from the verdict form, and I just was going to ask if I was missing it, I don't see anything on here for past medical expenses. Um, Was there a... Is there some reason why that wouldn't be on there in California? Yeah, we waived them. You waived them. Okay. Okay. What I I find is that when you you go after past medical, you now have a comparative number they can use. You know, how do do I ask for a $20 million life care plan when the bulk of the procedures have already been done uh, and it was so much less? The anchoring effect pulls the verdict down, uh, and uh, you know the the uh, juries like to have a an objective number that they can start with, and if you give them past medicals, that's where they start, and it's really right. hard to get them up into the forty six million dollar range if they're start at eight hundred, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I definitely understand that. Is it, and you said eight hundred. Is that basically what his past medicals were? I think that's what it was. But okay. I mean, it was a lot of money. Make no mistake about it. Right. Uh, and it's always a risk to do that. And, and uh, but you know, it's something that I, uh, I'm confident that the research is robust. That that is what you should do. Right. 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 And. Well, Speaking of, I, I like that I don't want to get too too far ahead or um, get off track from where Steve was going, but I, I thought one of the things that was was really great is you sent us a decent amount of transcripts from this case, and one of the things that your partner did in the opening that you did in closing that I thought was really effective in the way um, it was explained and sort of emphasized was that for those for the future medical expenses that you um, were able to get the jury to award, that you really did a great job setting them up from the very beginning and then tying it together at the end, that that, that was money they weren't giving your client. That was money right. that was going to be going to other people for his care. Yeah, I think that's essential that you, you make, make that distinction crystal clear. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, w- I wanted to talk about the, you know, it, from what I could tell, there was there's a pretty big fight over the value of the case, and and there were a couple of issues um, that I was wondering about with your client. So, uh, Anthony uh, had scoliosis and had uh, metal bars in his back, 
And then, and I, and so my first question was, is, was there any type of claim from the defense that that somehow uh, played a causative role in him uh, um, breaking his spinal cord? I, I, that's not something we ran from, and I can't remember if we actually said it in the opening, but I mean, that, that helped us. You take your, you take your plaintiff as you find him. And right. was able, and it explained to the jury why he was so had such a devastating injury when his girlfriend sitting next to him was relatively unscathed. Right. Yeah. yeah I and think, it, go ahead, about his, his well, spine was rigid, and so his neck just whipped, you know, and, and broke the. Uh, that's what caused the the spinal cord injury. I thought your partner did a really good job. It was discussed in the opening and it was discussed why this surgery would have been so important to him when he had it because of his um, scoliosis and the curvature of his spine, that that, that surgery was going to give him um, more height, more comfort. Mm -hmm. um, and what, a, and I thought that was a, you know, I, I think to the extent they wanted to make a big deal about it, like you said, you didn't run from it. And I think it was very relatable from the beginning that, of course, he had had that surgery earlier in his life. That would have been very important. Anyone would have done that. Sure, sure. And, you know, the, the interesting, to me, what was so interesting about the case was, you know, he, he, uh, he was mentally disabled, but such an incredibly delightful person. You know, he, he just a joy to be around. And, you know, I had him over to the house and, and you know, he just lit up the room, you know, wherever he was. Uh, and I, I think too often we will take people with mental disabilities and, and push them off into a corner and not treat them as fully valuable, thriving, vibrant people. Uh, and, uh, but there wasn't any any mistake with the jury at all that he he was every dime that that somebody born under more fortunate circumstances should have yeah well, one of the things i thought you all did really uh well in, in you know was sort of describing his uh his life path that um you know he had uh, been adopted at a very young age and he was with a family who tried to take care of him but because of the developmental delays found they couldn't and then he gets adopted by another family uh, who um, had experience in, in taking care of uh, children with developmental delays and actually his mother uh, owned uh, I think three daycare centers with um, that, that took care of children with developmental delays and he thrived under her and uh, really did well and then he um, got to the point where he was um, working as a um, as a custodian at Lockheed Martin and he and he talked and you talked about how much he loved that job and then he meets Courtney his girlfriend so he's got the job that he loves he's got the the girl of his dreams and you really painted this picture that up until this happened he was living his best life and was really having a, a great life and then of course this tragedy happens and and changes all of that yeah, and, and in fact, he was. I mean, he had, his mother had moved to Oregon uh, with her new husband, and uh, he moved in with his girlfriend's family uh, and had his own separate room. And it was, it was, it was so sweet, the, the way 
Courtney described it, you know, that they were waiting to have sex. They were, they were going to, but it wasn't right. It wasn't the right time yet. And I mean, it was a, this where everything is fully laid out for the jury and you just, you just loved this couple. It was delightful. Yeah, it really did paint just such a sweet picture of them. And, uh, and then really brought home, uh, you know, uh, what this, you know, event, what this, you know, meant to him and how much this had uh, really just changed his life. And so that when the jury was asked to do something about it, uh, you know, they, they did something in a, in a significant way. It was, it was interesting that the jury was probably the most conservative jury I'd ever seen at, in that venue. You know, normally you get a much more progressive jury uh, in downtown L.A. But, you know, when, when we were done picking the jury, I'm thinking, this is a jury from hell. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when you, when you have a conservative jury, what you do is you focus on the rules that are violated. And that's what we did. We just kept going back to the rules. What are the rules? You know? uh, and uh, then you want them to follow the rules when you give them the jury instructions. And they did. I'm, I'm interested. I didn't see it in here. It, um, I, I saw that one of the first people you put on the stand was the defendant. And I'm just wondering how, um, how she did on the stand and how the cross-examination of her went. Well, we were so limited in what we were allowed to ask her, you know, because they admitted liability. I didn't want her on at all, you know, uh, but I, I didn't win that one. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, but she held up well, you know, they, because I was so limited in what I could ask her, she can't, she was limping. She has a limp. But it was from a previous uh, condition, had nothing to do with the crash, although she was hurt in the crash, but it was a previous condition, you know, and I wasn't able to develop that. And I, I thought that was, but, and, and then they tried to run with it in the closing, but I, I think we successfully shoved it where it belonged. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, but she was a nice lady, you know, uh, and, but at the same time, it was her fault. It wasn't right. denying it. And, you know, there's a big, big issue as to why the, uh, the cell phone records showed a text so close to the time of the crash, you know, right. <laughs> that I wasn't allowed to go into, right. uh, which was a fight. Uh, but it, it, you know, it kind of, uh, it, it, it brings up a caution we should all be aware of. Let's assume, and I'm not saying we were able to prove it because she denied it, but let's assume she was texting at the stop sign that she yeah. stopped. And then she proceeded into the intersection after she was done texting. What people don't seem to recognize, my own wife doesn't recognize it because she'll pull up the <clears throat> stop sign, is that you've now altered your focus. You're, you're now no longer focused on the traffic. And we have a limited bandwidth. Uh, and, you know, the principles of scarcity come into play. And when you go to that cell phone, even when you put it down and then look back up, you were still with the cell phone. You know, you haven't reoriented. And so what she did, assuming that's what occurred, and I can't say that for certain it did, she puts it down and then pulls out into the street because she's distracted still. You know, uh, it's... It, you know, it's the whole science behind we can't multitask. 
And it takes right. a period of time to get back to where you were when you go off, off uh, whatever you're doing. And, you know, this was just, a tr this could, I suspect that this was just a tragic, tragic example of that. So, um, yeah, I was wondering about that because, um, you know, here in Georgia, they have, we passed a law uh, that you, you can't even touch your cell phone uh, while driving now. And I'm wondering what California's law is on that. And, um, but you said you weren't able to get into that at, at, at trial because she admitted liability. Well, you, you certainly, because they admitted liability, but you, you certainly can't text. Uh, but unfortunately, you're allowed to talk on the cell phone if you use the speaker. And right. but this, even though the science is robust, it makes no difference whether you're holding the phone or not holding the phone. It is the distraction and the mental resources, the cognitive resources that you're taking away that makes you no longer capable of responding to an emergent situation. Certainly you can drive that way, but if something happens, there's gonna be a delayed response. And that's why it shouldn't be done. Uh, you know, we, we used to make our kids put their phone in the trunk when we had that kind of control. <clears throat> now, yeah. you know, they're adults. <laughs> you, know? well, you, you know, it's interesting, you, you know, because I was just noticing in some of the newer cars, you know, they've got this uh, technology where basically it syncs your phone with the screen in the car. So your screen is showing your phone. So while you're technically not touching your phone, you certainly can still be distracted by it because everything on your phone is now coming up on a screen in the car. Um, Actually, you have a greater and, distraction because now you see the number, you see, you know, who the person is that's calling. And yeah, I agree. It, uh, I, it always astonishes me how, how reluctant we are to pay attention to robust science if it right. has any impact on our behavior. You know, if, if it's going to impact our behavior, we ignore it. Right, right. Well, and I think it's so easy and and maybe um, much easier, clearly much easier for people to accept when they hear a story like this is somehow to distance themselves from it, you know, um, and not think about it happening to them. I mean, one of the circumstances about um, this wreck that I found really sort of, especially n n since I knew the injuries first, mm -hmm. um, was that, you know, the driver, um, um, your client's girlfriend's mom, she was going under the speed limit because it was rainy. She was only going, what, about 40 miles an hour. Right. Um, so, I mean, this is, a kind, this is the kind of circumstance that even if you're staying away from highways or business, busy areas, I mean, this is, this is a situation that can happen to anyone, including, you know, many of us could be that driver at the stop sign who's just slightly distracted, who thinks it's a four-way stop instead of a, you know, a situation where they have to yield. And obviously such you know, really tragic, scary results that you'd think we'd all think about it a little more, how easily that could be one of us. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I, I totally get it. I mean, it's not like I don't ever not use the phone. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely something people should be aware of. And, and, you know, it's, I, I think like you, you were saying Rex that, uh, the science shows it. I mean, even if you're, you know, eating a snack in the car or even listening to the radio can be a distraction to some extent. So, I mean, there, there are all kinds of distractions when you're driving in your car. And, and I think the biggest lesson is, is if you have children, when they start to drive, 
you need very clear rules. Like my, yeah. my wife would go out and check the car and if the radio was on, they lost the car for a week. <laughs> until you become unconsciously competent at something, you can't afford any cognitive resources being taken away. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I want to talk a bit, a bit about how you built the damages in this case, because what I noticed about, about it was that it seemed like the big fight here was over, you know, what the, like the life care plan, what the value of the life care plan, and it, it looked like the defendants had their own life care planner. And then, um, you know, uh, you know, they got in their own uh, uh, doctor to talk about the care. And I think at one point in the opening, uh, there, there was mention of a doctor that said, or the defense doctor that said that he didn't need his tracheostomy anymore. Um, and then uh, when you all were uh, asking the, the uh, treating physician, you know, what do you think about this idea that he doesn't need his tracheostomy before? And he said, well, I think you're uh, gambling with his life. Um, you know, if you do that, you're taking a huge risk. Um, so talk a little bit about the fight on uh, where, where it came down to on the damages and, and, um, and how you were able to overcome that. I, I think in the end, that actually drove the verdict up, at least with some of the jurors, that, you know, their whole idea that the reason the tracheostomy was so important was because with it, you needed skilled nursing for the rest of his life, 24 hours a day. Without it, you would not need that. You know, it, the, uh, the, the cost of the life care plan was greatly diminished without the tracheostomy. Now, right. you know, uh, and, and I thought the defense had some good points. You know, he, he hadn't been to a, uh, a quality rehab center, uh, which would have tried to wean him off it. Uh, although they did try to wean him off it, they were unsuccessful. But, you know, I don't know how you, you can sit in judgment of somebody because they don't want to feel like they're suffocating. You know, right. that's really the process you have to go through is you have to feel like you're suffocating and live with that for a number of weeks before you're weaned off. Uh, I mean, to me, it was such a ridiculous, I, I, I mean, I thought the judge sort of intervened and said, you know, this is, but, uh, <laughs> right. the, uh, uh, but one of the jurors, you know, cause what my argument was is, well, okay, take it out. Say he doesn't die. And, you know, now you can reduce the, the cost of the care he's getting. Why is he not entitled to the, the uh, skilled nursing anyway? Because you got to remember with, with quadriplegics is, you know, just the, the uh, being unable to, to defecate can cause your blood pressure to, to drop to where it's life-threatening, in a second, your ability to, to regulate heat is totally compromised. Uh, you know, you live in a constant state of potential death because of the just the ramifications of being a quadriplegic that are a, a much greater concern than an average person, much, much greater. Now, that doesn't mean it, it happens all the time. But it does mean you have to take precautions from it. Mm -hmm. And and why aren't you entitled to to skilled nursing care just for the turning every twenty minutes, uh, or every two hours? I'm sorry, so you don't develop 
bed sores because you need that skilled nursing to see before the bed sore develops. Because once you get it, you may never lose it, and it may eventually kill right. you. Uh, you know, there's just a host of of problems that if you're going to get as close to where you were before the collision, you need skilled nursing. And and I thought the jury agreed with us, with or without the tracheostomy removal. Uh, but you know, they 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 messed up so many times. Like they. They fought with us in front of the judge about whether or not his nurse could be in the courtroom when he testified. And so they won that one. And next thing you know, he's up there choking to death. You know, oh. had to, we had to literally rush him out of the courtroom and get the, and, and start, uh, you know, the suction on his tracheostomy. Uh, the, uh, you know, they're, they would have been much better off to, to relax a little bit more. I, I think they, they created a, a perfect storm condition. You know, right. Yeah. I, I was reading an article this morning about the Higgs field, you know, that, you know, the Haldron Collider, you know. Building. Right. Well, it, it turns out that every particle's mass is, is determined, which means gravity, the weight by how fast it moves through the Higgs field, whatever that is. You know, the resistance of the Higgs field gives particles their mass. I think trials are like that. I think that you want all that stuff. You want all those fights and all that resistance because that's what oh, yeah. the mass, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great analogy. So I, I have a couple questions that related to um, um, what you were just telling us, but, but one of the things I had, plan to ask you later, but I'll ask you now is, is, is what you did with how you handled introducing the jury to your client, how much time he or his family spent, um, in the courtroom, how you handled his testimony. And it sounds like you brought him, him live to testify and he, he had some medical issues, but can you talk a little bit about how you handled him and his family? Well, you know, it, it was expensive to begin with. He's up in Oregon. And so we had to have a, we, how he got back to Oregon when his mother rescued him from this nursing home, right, was she put him in the back of a trailer and, and took him home, you know. Uh, he, uh, that isn't how we, were gonna, how we were going to transport him. So we have, had to hire a medical plane, you know, a, a jet to bring him in and out. It was 50 grand just to, just to get him to the courtroom. Uh, and then you have to, to, he was in a hotel three blocks away and, you know, you need a suite because you need the nurse right next to him all the time. You know, you have to pay for the nurse to be there. And, you know, it, it's really expensive handle, handling a quadriplegic case. But I didn't want him in the courtroom, I, but I wanted him in the hallway a lot, you know, a couple hours a day so that the jury could just get comfortable with him. Uh, and... Then when he finally testified, I mean, it was just adorable. Uh, as, I, as I'm wheeling him out, I, you know, past the jury, I, I said, say goodbye, Anthony. And he turns in, in his head and he, and he, you know, he can move his arms a little bit and attempted to wave. And they all told him goodbye. It was just, it was just <laughs> beautiful, you know. Uh, I, knew, I knew they were going to be okay. Uh, he was delightful. He just really was. Well, and, and yeah, you, you touched on one of the things that I thought it especially makes 
defending the case interesting about the kind of skilled nursing that he was entitled to. Um, I, I think, you know, you hear about this story, which basically after he, he should have or could have died from these infections he gets from neglect in the, in the, in the nursing facility, his mom takes him to take care of him herself. And is basically taking care of him, I guess, up to, you know, while you're litigating the case and getting ready to try it, she's taking care of him 18 hours a day, sleeping in an RV to, to be near him. That's when he was in the acute care. No, no, no. I'm sorry. That's when he was in the nursing care facility. She parked right outside. Okay. Okay. Got it. Then when it, because they, you know, she didn't realize they weren't taking that brace off and looking underneath it, you know, and it wasn't until the smell got so bad that she insisted they do that, that they realized how bad it was. Uh, The, uh, but, but yeah, she was totally devoted to him. what she she was beautiful on the stand. In, in fact, a lot of other law firms came and watched the the direct of her because you know you know how it is when you got a big case and other people know about it. Right. The, yeah. the uh, uh, and one of them uh, from Brian Panish's office, uh, he tells me that woman's a saint. <laughs> right. <laughs> and in, and indeed, she she appeared to be that way. But you know, we had we had a uh, we have this woman that prepares our, our plaintiffs and our major witnesses, and I don't know that they would have had that impression of her had we not spent two days preparing her. You know, and how they prepare them is not on the facts of the case at all, but on how to present. You know, how not to change your your uh, appearance once they start to cross. You know, it's very important that your body posture stay the same, your voice tone stays the same, and that you you try to answer their questions with as much effort as you try to answer your lawyer's questions. And, you know, things like that take practice uh, because, you know, it's extremely threatening first time you're up there. Right, right. It's scary. And, and it sounds like you, you also, um, she had to do a lot of the, the talking about sort of um, how this is it had affected Anthony emotionally. Um, it sounded like, I can't remember if I read that in the opening or closing or, or somewhere else, but that it was hard, understandably hard for Anthony to talk about the sort of anxiety and fear and, and grief that he had post-accident and that you, she did a lot of the talking when it came to the effects, that, the emotional effects this had had on him. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Uh, the, uh, you know, Anthony had disabilities, but he was a typical 22-year-old, you know, young man with 22-year-old hopes and dreams and all of that, you know. Uh, like when my partner, Alex, when he went up to Oregon, he took him to dinner. And it, he wouldn't go the first time because the the uh, catheter sack bag you could see it underneath the wheelchair and it embarrassed him so much. Yeah. And then when he got the new wheelchair where you could conceal it, then he would go. You know, it it uh, there, there's so many moments of humiliation when you become totally dependent for for your very existence on others that 
you know, I'm in my 60s. I could care less. But you know, <laughs> when, it, when I was in my 20s, that was not the case. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You're in your 20s. Hey. You're up in your head about like everything, stuff that doesn't yeah. matter, let alone <laughs> stuff like this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it does bring up, uh, you know, now that you were talking about the humiliation and, and um, the emotional distress that he went through, I was noticing on your verdict form that, that those terms are actually uh, on the verdict form in the description of non-economic damages. And I'm just wondering in California, is that, is that normal to have, uh, have uh, non-economic damages laid out on the verdict form like that? Or, or is that well, something you all asked for? There, there's about six things on the actual verdict form, but then, you know, in the brackets, it says, and others. If you, if you put evidence on for them, you, you can list them. Now, okay. now the, the issue I always have with that, and I'm still trying to figure it out, what, what's best to do, is I suspect that we have too many things on it, you know? Uh, and, uh, as a result, they just lump it together. What I, what I, and what we do is we prepare a matrix and we point out that the law says you must uh, compensate them for these things. And that's what it says. It doesn't say can, it says must compensate them. Yeah. And what we try to get them to do is build their own matrix, uh, you know, for the future and for the past for each of those items. That's why we put so many on them. But I, I also think that where where juries really compensate you is for the loss of the good things. You know, it's not the bad stuff. Because right. there's no value. I mean, there's no there's no cognitive metaphor to support it. You know, uh, pain and suffering. You don't pay for pain and suffering. You pay to get rid of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Great point. So. What I, what I try to do is to put it all in the loss of enjoyment. Sometimes I've even just said to the jury, take it. Take all that pain and suffering, give it to them. Just give it to them. Give them a discount, right? But you have to compensate them for the good stuff that was taken. And then I go through all the good stuff that was taken. And I usually get, that's when I got the $370 million. It, it was doing it that way. Right. Um, you know, and, and when you focus on the good stuff that's taken and, and what should be compensated for, most cases become large cases. You know, if there's any chronic pain condition continuing, they become large cases. You know, I mean, it, it's rare that if we, we can show the chronic pain is still ongoing and will be continuing ongoing, that we don't get at least seven figures for any type of injury, whether there's a surgery or not. Right. Yeah. But that's, that's, but, that's, but that's because of the good stuff that was taken. Right. All the stuff you can't do when you're in pain. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this and I'm gonna say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, 
reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search, and I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means, and they'll tell you what all of these things do, and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Yeah, and how, how much, what a profound effect pain has on just about every aspect of your life, even right. your cognitive function. If it's your big uh, toe, it has yeah. the same effect, you know, the, the, uh, and I find that the biggest effect that it has is that you become so self-centered. I mean, all they talk about is their pain. All they talk yeah. about is themselves. And they don't have the cognitive resources to focus on others, not even their own families. You know, I mean, the, the, the times that I'm in heaven are when I'm totally focused on somebody else. And, right, right. Uh, the, uh, rarely do I enjoy anything when the focus is on me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I think when you successfully convey that loss to the jury. And, and then, you know, one of the things I'll use is a, is a picture of a person in prison, you know, in the closing. Because you've now become imprisoned. You know, right. you're at home. You, you don't have any friends. They've slow, slowly just evaporated, uh, all because you have, you've become so involved in yourself. And, and there's right. little hope, little, little you can do about that. Well, and then it starts to build on itself because then that builds you up, uh, you know, it starts giving you depression, you know, and then depre depression builds on the pain and it, it sort of starts piling on top of each other. And, and, um, and what yeah, is we absolutely life without laughter? Right, right. And, and I don't want you to pay for the depression. I want you to pay for the life without laughter. Yeah, yeah. And that's different, you know. Uh, because everybody's been depressed to one degree or another. And I, I think we tend to trivialize it because of that. But all of us got back to the laughter. It's when yeah. you don't, you know, that, that life becomes so unbearable. Well, yeah, and you, and you know that the best times in your life is when you're sitting around with family and laughing or sitting around with friends yeah. and laughing. And exactly. if you take that away, I mean, you take away a huge part of life. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you, you mentioned earlier on that um, the, the jury that you saw in this case was a lot more conservative than you were expecting. And I'm just wondering, um, you, you know, um, I mean, you, you know, first going, you know, to whether or not you focus group the case and then did you... Were you looking for a certain type of juror? How did you how did you go about jury selection in this case? Well, we we do a focus group over the internet. You know, we have a company that does it for us to identify the issues, and you know, in, in, in an attempt also to get a general idea of the demographic we want. Uh, but mostly just to focus the issues. You know, where where are they getting hung up? Where what are they celebrating? You know, things of that nature. Then we yeah. do an actual live focus group uh, about a week before the trial. Um, and, you know, we present pieces of the case that we want. And, and primarily that, that's so we can practice, you want to know the truth. Uh, and, and I, you know, we do get some valuable feedback from it. Uh, but, you know, it's very, very hard to 
pick a, a jury demographically because the research doesn't support it. It just right. doesn't support it. Uh, you know, there's a few broad characterizations that seem to, to still apply, like what research we've done with facial expression analysis and, and doing regressions af after, you know, they give a, a decision. Hispanic women have trouble getting over into the eight-figure region. And I'm hmm. not sure why, but that seems to be consistent. But other than that, I don't see a, a racial uh, breakdown. Now, I do see an age breakdown in it, according to what you focus on. You know, Generation X and below, you focus on the impact on the family that this has had. And verdicts will drive up. I, I, that's pretty robust by now. People my age that you want to tug at the heartstrings, you know the right, the uh, blood and guts part of the case uh, is more important than the family impact. But with conservatives, it will come down to rules. You know, yeah. did they break the rules, and what do the rules say you need to do about it? And I just kept going back to that. You know, the rules say you'll do this. And, you know, he, they, they tried this stunt in closing. Uh, she's already, you know, she, you saw her uh, with her cane. She's already been uh, punished. Punished, and, yeah. I forget how they worded it. It was clearly unethical what they did. Uh, but I, you know, I, I let him do it because how I handled it was I talked about that and then, you know, what a nice lady she was and, and, but the law says you shall not consider insurance. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the, the research is robust that whenever you tell somebody not to do something, that's what they do. You know, they start yeah. there think about that. And so whenever you want to convey something you're not supposed to, if you're allowed to say you're not allowed to do it, make sure you remind them of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's where you place the focus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it when you were, uh, again, from the themes that you were developing in the case, I thought they you know, would play very well with a uh, more conservative jury, which was you were developing the themes of uh, responsibility and accountability. Uh, and that that was this case was was about, and I thought that the, that um, you know was a really good really good use of a of a theme for the case, especially when you're talking to a jury that you know is more conservative. That um, that that's you know um, what they hold. That what are the important things? You know, they they had one really good witness. They had the the doctor who was the physiatrist uh, who was in a wheelchair. You know, Dr. Kim, uh, who was delightful. I mean, I, I just fell in love with her. Uh, and uh, but in the end, you know, she helped us a lot because their whole thing was he's going to die 16 years earlier. You know, they were trying to cut the life care plan that way. And so I just said, if this was your patient, he he wouldn't be dying 16 years early, would he? And she just flared and she goes, if he was my patient, no. <laughs> and the, the, the end of that story is he is now her patient. <laughs> really? Is that yeah. right? She flies <laughs> up 
every so often and, and reviews his care and, you know, what's going on with him. And, wow. Uh, and what was that? Wasn't she connected to either your expert or one of his other treaters somehow? Well, yeah, that was the problem. Is he was, she was connected to the treater. And when he heard that she was saying, because she was his professor, and when, she, when he heard she was saying he could go off the track, all of a sudden he thought she could go, he could go off the track. Oh, okay, got it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I always thought that was a ridiculous argument. Nobody likes to have anything shoved down their throat to suck out the, the, the uh, fluids, you know. Uh, it, but, you know, you got to have something to fight about because you need Higgs field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I always wonder about that. The, you know, whenever they bring in these, uh, you know, folks that talk about diminished life expectancy, I, I've never really seen where I thought it was used effectively by the defense with the jury. And I guess I'm wondering if, what your experience is on that. I've never seen it used effectively. Uh, but, you know, life care plants can get really high. So I can see the temptation. But right. you know, the, the argument to it is, okay, what if they're right? You mean one year of life is not worth this amount of money? Because that's what they took. They killed him. What they're saying to you, give us a discount because we killed him. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we get pretty brutal in the closing. But the trick is not to do it with an angry voice. You know, uh, you know I, I think I even brought up to the jury is the last thing I want is an angry jury. Right, you know, right. Because in the face of anger, justice evaporates. Uh, the uh, and but the real reason is is the studies indicate if you're angry, you would conserve resources, uh, and you won't you get less money. Wow. Well, and it, it sounded like you could. Um, I, I thought that was in the closing. That was one of the many sort of. Um, you know, I noticed your emphasis on the rules. Um, you know, your emphasis on you didn't want them angry, and if they got angry, to take a break and then kind of um, yeah. come back. Um, can, and what other sorts of things you did you do to sort of, you know, we talked about how you didn't introduce the past damages uh, because you didn't the past medical expenses. I'm sorry, because you didn't want them that to serve as an anchor to anchor things too low. What um, other sort of strategies and, and techniques did you do? Um, to sort of get them more in the ballpark of where of where they needed to be. Well, you know, we, we always start out talking about just how much we're going to be asking for uh, and why that, you know, and, you know, there's all kinds of motions and lemony preventing us from doing that. But from the beginning, I want that jury to understand that I'm asking for an elacious amount of money because I need them chewing on it early. You know, if they, what we find is if we, if we pop it in the closing, and that's the first time right. they hear it, what we will see emotionally with the facial expression and analysis is fear and anger. Uh, and, you know, that both of those emotions are not good for us. Uh, so we tell them about it very early, what, what it's going to be. Uh, and then, you know, I just try to keep it very simple math. You know, this is how many years, how much for this specific thing that was taken a year, you know, and then just add it up. Uh, it always comes to a huge amount of money because it should be a huge amount of money. 
I mean, let's not make any mistake about that. We're not asking for something he shouldn't get, you know? Right. As long as we have this system of justice, if this is the rules we have, then he's entitled to a great deal. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're, you really want the jury to get that what they're doing is very significant, you know? And there's a few other things you want to talk about. Is I don't talk about how much time we're taking from them. They're not even getting paid for it. And, and you know how lawyers will talk about that crap. What I, what I talk about is you're going to be investing a huge amount of time into this case. So let's do it right, you know? But yeah. I use the metaphor investment. What does investment lead to? This is their investment, you know? Uh, the, uh, you know, and, and it's also something they want to be proud of at the end. I only know of one way to do that, and that's to make sure they're fully compensated. But recently, since the Taylor case, we've, we've changed the approach a little bit, is I tell them very early, this is not about making him whole, because they'll always make that, they'll always, in Void Dyer, somehow that'll always come up about making him whole. And I go, we are not asking you to make him whole because you can't, right? No one can. This is about compensating him for what was taken. You know? uh, and uh, it, it seemed to be very effective for us. I'm like, we're, Steve and I are both silent, I think, because we're both like writing. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually, I'm actually taking a couple of notes because I, I, I like the, uh, I like the, uh, you know, you can't make them whole. That's a, I, I like that, um, you know, how you, how you uh, give that to the jury. So, um, yeah. So I was taking notes. That was what you caught me doing. We both were. We've, I've got like a page full here. There, I'm like, don't forget <laughs> <laughs> It's really great. Um, well, and it sounded like there were two sort of, I just noticed from your closing, because I feel like this always is, I feel like this is always effective when you can do it. It sounds like when you gave your closing, um, two things that had happened was that, um, I guess Stephen Hawking had recently passed away and was kind of an illustration of pointing to somebody as far as life expectancy. But there was also the, um, uh, was it a Da Vinci painting that was found, or yeah, yeah. the the uh, I just drew a blank. I, I know the name of it. Um, I don't. Salvador, I don't. Salvador Monday uh, is the name of the painting, and it's a picture of Christ holding a a globe. You know, uh, and is that the one that was found in somebody's attic? I think I remember reading about that. Uh, it's always the proverbial addict, but that's where they right. store paintings in Europe. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, I used to use Van Gogh's physician that was actually found in an attic. <laughs> Salvador Mundi was found in the 50s, and, or maybe 40s, and, and it was not thought to be a Da Vinci. They thought one of his assistants painted it. You know, that it, initially they said it was a Da Vinci, and then no, that's a fake. It's not him. And then it was discovered it truly was him. But when it when it was his assistant that sold it, that painted it, it sold for two hundred and some dollars or two thousand and some dollars, something like that. 
when it sold at Christie's last year, it was $458 million. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, but that's, that's to set the metaphor. And, but it, it also goes like this. It's when they thought it was a fake, it was worth nothing. It was valueless. Right? But when they discovered it was real, then it was worth this, right? And isn't that this case? Aren't, you know, you can't use it in the quadriplegic case, but in most cases, isn't that this case? Where they're telling you it is a fake, that they are faking, they're exaggerating, that it's not nearly as bad as they say. And if that is accurate, this case is worth very little. But when you decide it is not, and that they are not faking, and that they are being totally truthful with you, just like their doctor said, you know, you don't even have to finish it. But, I'm a, but you know, I'll always do this. No, I'm not asking you for $450 million. I'm anchoring with that at that point. <laughs> you know, that's why I'm doing it. Right. I'm anchoring it. But, you know, the defense gets all upset about anchoring. Anchoring lasts for about 20 minutes. That's how long right. that lasts. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but what I'm really wanting is the, the lore of what do you compare this to? You know, it's unique. It has great value. And yes, it's priceless. Because I talk about priceless in jury selection. It's priceless. But that doesn't mean you can't set a value. You know? Right. Uh, and with the right jury, I don't know. I, don't, I think it's limitless. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's a valid way to do it. You know, it's, uh, but you know, people, we only think all abstract thought is metaphoric. Uh, so pick your metaphors, be very careful with it. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been just a, a, a great interview and really a, a great uh, lesson on how to build damages in a case. And, uh, and, and you all certainly did that in the case of Taylor versus Schilling. Uh, is there, Rex, is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners uh, about, you know, how you tried the case or, you know, what happened in the case that, uh, that we haven't talked about yet? Um, before we let you go, because you, you've, uh, you've, you've been very generous with your time. Sure. You know, uh, one of the things that occurred in the case is it was, and it was a fight every day. You know, the, the, uh, one of the defense lawyers was, he was constantly trying to pick a fight with me. And, it, <laughs> and you can't have that happen because the jury will mirror it. You know, we don't like people. When, when we're angry, we don't like it. We don't like the yeah. way we feel. And we don't like the person who made us feel that way, right? So I can't allow that to happen. It'll, it'll bleed over into the jury. It got to the point I had, uh, you know, I'm the mayor of a city, so I had a deputy sit in the courtroom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Just stay away from me. Right. It, wasn't, it wasn't because I was physically afraid of him. It was because I didn't want to engage in the arguments. Yeah. Because it took so much away from the jury. You know, and the other thing I, I did differently in this case that I've learned to do is in the break, go out with the jury, stand, you know, uh, not so that you're eavesdropping, but there's the thing called the familiarity bias. You want them looking at you as part of their group. 
And that is a visual representation that is made, not a verbal one, right? And I used to stay so far away from them, but not anymore. I'm, we're right out there in the, with them, you know, and we keep it that way. Uh, and about three weeks into the trial, the other side tried to, tried to emulate that, but we had already established <laughs> the spaces. You know? Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's really interesting. And I really like the idea of, uh, you know, I've, I've always thought about not getting worked up or not getting angry because of the risk of, you know, making a mistake or just or, or becoming unprofessional when you're that emotional. But I really like the idea of thinking about the, the effect that that has on the jury that 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 takes that they can take that on that that affects um, how they're feeling and thinking. Right. And, and remember, it, it, we have mirror cells in our brain that mirror the emotions of the people we are looking at. That's just the way we're built. You know, judges are that way, too. We do not like people who make us feel bad. Right. Let that person be you. And that includes making the jury sad. I want the witnesses to 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 get them, you know, emoting about how bad it is. But it can't be me. Right. Yep. Uh, and that took me decades to learn. Yeah, I, I agree. With, not only can it not be you, but I also don't like to have it be my client. Um, you know, I never like to have right. my client get up there and complain or talk about how tough their life is. You know, let other people do that. Um, they, they are a message of hope. That's right. And, and I, tell, I always tell them, I go, every tear that falls from your face, take a hundred grand and throw it down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> hey, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey, oh Rex, this, is, uh, this has been just great. And let me just remind uh, everybody that we have been talking to uh, Mayor Rex Paris, the mayor of Lancaster with the Paris Law Firm. You can look up Rex at parislawyers.com. That's P-A-R-R-I-S lawyers.com. And the case that we've been talking about is Taylor versus Schilling. Um, and that was in Los Angeles County last year. I believe the verdict was 41,634,170. If I am wrong, then we will make sure we correct that. Um, but, uh, but this has been just a great uh, interview. And thank you so much for your time, uh, uh, Rex. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great trials 
Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.